Good evening. Welcome to the Irish Times Book Club podcast held here in association with the Irish Writers' Centre here in Dublin's Parnell Square. Uh, this month's title is Solar Bones by Mike McCormick, which has just been shortlisted for the Goldsmiths Prize. It's 20 years since Mike's debut collection of stories, Getting It in the Head, uh, was published and won him the prestigious Rooney Prize for Irish Literature. Two years later came his first novel, Crow's Requiem, then a seven-year gap to its follow-up, Notes from a Coma, described by John Waters as the best Irish novel of the decade. Then another seven-year gap before his second collection, Forensic Songs, in 2012. Welcome, Mike. Uh, thanks for Thank travelling up from the West to join us this evening. You're welcome. Could I start by asking you about the stretches of time between your works coming out? Um, how much of that was to do with uh, the pace at which you work? And how much to do with your struggle to have your voice heard in a publishing world, perhaps more focused on the till than the experimental? Yeah, I think there's a bit, a bit of both in, in uh, a bit of both aspects in that uh, in that question. There's a two-year gap between my first novel uh, and my first between my first book of short stories and my novel book one and book two. And um, the reason for that, I, I was talking about it today, was was uh, I submitted the novel about nine or ten months after my after my uh, book of short stories was published. And um, the, my editor came back to me and he, and he said, uh, he said, Mike, there's a big problem with this book. He says it's a first-person narrative and um, every moment and every ounce of sensibility is refracted through the eyes of this character called Crow. And if we don't like him, then the book is lost. And he says, there is a small but decisive difference between being sympathetic and pathetic. And frankly, this fellow is pathetic. He says, <laughs> he says I could not suffer him after 50 pages. Um, and if I met him in a pub, I'd move to the other end of the counter. Uh, so I had to take the book. Now he says, there's nothing wrong with the book itself. It's just his tone. Uh, there's nothing wrong with the story. It's just his tone. So. I took the book back and I saw what he was on about, that he was, this crow was a bit too inclined to be lachrymose and a bit too apt for tears. And I had to put some kind of, find some way of putting some fire in his belly. So that retuning of that book, the retuning of his voice, that took another year. So that, in what should have been a year mm -hmm. uh, between books, uh, added another publishing cycle to it, which is another year, two years, so it became two years. And that was my second book. And for my third book, then, I was... <clears throat> I wanted to write that thing that, that writers are always told about. I wanted to write the book that only I could write. So it took me a while to find that. And that became uh, Notes from a Coma, which is a kind of... It's, a, it's an attempt to splice a piece of Irish domestic realism with a 1950s science fiction novel. And it's... Uh, it took me a long time to get my head around the structure of that and to get my head around. I found that, I think, of all my books, I found that that one the most difficult, um, even though it's the shortest of my books. Um, there's a long, there's a sequence, there is, it's it's basically a realist piece of fiction with a, with a, with a science fiction scheme going through it about a penal experiment set in the Killary Harbour. Um, but it's it's enlivened and cut across and fragmented by a thing called an event horizon, which blurts through the pages and that, and which which acts as a commentary on that. So it took me a long time to. I think it took me a long time to both grasp my courage and go for that, and to and to find a way and a voice to do it and that. So that book came out seven years after. That book came out seven years after after uh, Crow's Requiem, and. Um, Crow's Requiem actually had divided the world. Um, my, my first book, when, when I published it, uh, Getting It in the Head, got unanimously good reviews. My second book, Crow's Requiem, divided the world. The people who loved Getting It in the Head couldn't believe that I'd written this love story and that. And um, so it, it got very mixed reviews. In fact, to this day, it still stands as getting the worst review of any book I've ever read. And that the very first review I read of my very first novel was in the Telegraph, and it says, started off by saying, I can't think of anything good to say about this book. 
and, it, and then it went on to, to lament to lament the fact that trees had to be cut and pulped to make the book and then that, so that's the very first review I read of my very first novel uh, on a Saturday and um, so I, I, I was devastated when I read that but uh, two other reviews came out the same day and they were positive so the score was 2-1 at the end of the day so it wasn't too bad Which one do you dwell on though? Uh, it's, it's the, I, I can't remember. I can't remember the good ones. I, I, but I, just, I, I remember yeah. that one. But then, when, when Notes from a Coma was published, it uh, that got very good reviews. Uh, it was seen as something original, and uh, it was seen as something original, and it was a it was a, a, a notable, I suppose, narrative experiment in that. But it just dropped off the side of a cliff. It it um, it it quite quickly got a reputation for being difficult to read something I you know something I I, I am um, something I would argue uh, but and it, it also people persisted in using the word footnotes to describe the this thing in, in it called an event horizon and you know as my wife says I will go to my bed go to my grave roaring they're not fucking footnotes it's 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 it's, uh, it's a thing called an event horizon and um, so anyways that that <laughs> Has yeah. that phrase caught on anywhere? No, not at all. Uh, I'm, I'm still thinking of having a crack at it because the world should know about it. Mm. But uh, I, yeah, that book then cost me my, my um, in one of those periodic culls that runs through major publishing houses, um, uh, I, got cut, I got cut away from Jonathan Cape. And... Um, that's a difficult prospect uh, as a middle-aged writer trying to make it in in literary fiction. Uh, it's a pretty cold place to be. Uh, no one wants to know you. Um, you don't really have that many people coming. Frankly, you have no one coming looking for your work at that stage. So one of the things about that, though, is that, that having no publisher is one of the most gaunt and ashen definitions of artistic freedom. You can do anything you want then. So I was went and wrote a book of short stories, which I've always, which was my which was my first love, and um, I published that. And uh, who brought that out then? Lilliput did that. Uh, Anthony Farrell did a did a beautiful edition. So you weren't quite friendless. I wasn't quite friendless. No, uh, Anthony Farrell has has always been kind of kept an eye out for me and was was a was a. a, a was just interested in what I was doing. And that came out. But that book, you know, kind of fell away as well. And it got, it got the sort of polite, appreciative reviews that books of short stories sometimes tend to get in that. So then I was writing. I met Marcus Conway and I started listening to him. And um, I spent five years listening to him and taking dictation from him. Mm -hmm. And... Um, <clears throat> And that was how that book came about. I was very surprised when, I was very surprised when, when uh, towards the final edits, when we were doing it with Sarah and Lisa, we, we had to hunt up a date where I, where I had, uh, I had published a, a part of the book in, a, in an anthology of, of uh, writings, which was, which was done for charity, and it was about dementia and old people. This was the, this was the, the, the theme of the book, and I had. I had sent off the chapter to uh, the chapter about Marcus's father dying. I'd sent that, contributed that to the book. And if you'd asked me at the time, I would have said that, oh yeah, I sent this, it was about three years ago I sent it. But when I looked up the date, I found that it was actually five years ago that I'd sent it. And I, was, I couldn't believe that, Jesus, I've been five years at this book. I can't believe that. Because not only can I not believe that it's five years, one of the things that's come to light since the book has been published is that I've no memory of, of writing the book. Um, I've no memory because it's, it appears that, it, that at f I sent it to my publisher, or I sent it to my agent at, at half past two in the morning, Marion Gunn O'Connor. I sent it at half past two in the morning. And six or seven or eight hours later, I got into the car and I went into the hospital with my wife and I became a dad for the first time. And my son Saul seems to have risen up between myself and the book, and I, I can't say over Saul to the book that I that I spent five years writing. So, an answer, a long answer to a short question. Th those are that's what accounts for the gaps between. Sure, the, between no, it's great. Books. 
Now, I think there's a quote um, that you said somewhere that uh, that your wife may have said to you, um, it isn't your job to get published, it's your job to write. So is it hard, though, to kind of maintain, to be true to your vision when that vision has been either trashed by the Telegraph reviewer or rejected by your publisher? publisher. Yeah. It is, yeah. I, it, it's, um, it's seriously frightening. Uh, it's seriously difficult. It's wake up at night with your heart thumping in your chest, frightening. Um, I thought my life was over. Uh, it, it, it came at a, because it came at a time when I'd published three books and I'd always, I'd always heard that uh, um, anyone can write two books. It takes a writer to write three books. And I had written three books and I was now beginning to, I am a writer. And then Cape tells me, no, you're not. No, at least not with us. And that was, um, so that was, that was very difficult. Now, my wife is a painter, Maeve Curtis, and she's a painter, and so she knows what it is to spend a long time, as, as difficult and all as writers have it, uh, and they've had it difficult in the last nine or ten years. And painters and fine artists have had an incredibly difficult um, seven or eight years since the, the bottom fell out of the economy. And they know what it is to be plying away and plying their work away and get very little feedback or appreciation for it and that. So it was her, she told me this, she said, it's, it's not your job to, publishing isn't your job, your job is to write, publishing is some other, someone else's worry. So there were times actually when there was, there's times actually when there is a, actually there is a great freedom in not having someone kind of, not having a deadline, not having someone worried about you or something like that. But... Um, now, there's nothing like having a publisher, though. <laughs> you know, when all is said and done, writers want to be published. But yes, there are there were there were moments, and and, and uh, Maeve, Maeve understood this that there are moments when it feels great to be just to be writing. Yeah. Apart from your wife, then were there other forces that sustained you? Like we spoke about Anthony Farrell at Lilliput publishing your second collection of short stories. Were there other kind of I don't know magazines or other aspects of the, the literary it, world that <clears> kind of? There's a couple of people out there who, who always, whom I would be eternally grateful to, people who would seek me out for interviews or people who would, if a, if a small teaching job was gone or if a, a reading was gone, people like Alan Hayes at, at um, Arlen House, uh, people like Peter Murphy, Olaf Turnson, um, James Aggie in Northern Ireland, he published work on that. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a couple of people that would, that would come to me because they said, basically they used to say, you have a different take. You see things slightly different on that. So we're anxious to see what you want to say on these mm -hmm. things. So there's, there's about five or six of them there. And those ones are the, are, the, are the ones that stick in my mind, those four or five. Mm -hmm. Could we talk a bit, maybe a bit about A, where your vision, um, artistic vision comes from, um, and then maybe how... It has evolved over, over the years. You studied, um, actually you started off studying electronic engineering, which possibly <laughs> fed into um, having an engineer as uh, the main character here. But then you did English and philosophy, and I was wondering to, to what extent the, the novels are a vehicle for, um, for ideas or whatever that you might have, that might have started off studying philosophy and then maybe evolved over the years. Yeah. I did. I started uh, to study engineering. My, my father died in the in the year of my leaving cert. He died in February of of that year, and uh, he died very suddenly. He was, a, you know, a young man in his forties, and um, it was a huge shock to our family. And I was the oldest in the house, and I felt it kind of incumbent upon me to get a vocational education, I suppose. So I studied engineering. I went to study engineering. And because uh, I was the man of the house, I, did, I now had a family to look after, or so I thought at 18, 19 years of age in that. And, um, but I knew, within, I knew within about three or four hours of being in that first class that, that um, I had no hope of completing it. I just didn't have the maths. And, I, and furthermore, it was going against every instinct that, I'd, that I had kind of nurtured in secondary school. So I went home and I, I got a job uh, working in a pharmaceutical company then for a year and I, I read high up and low down for that year 
And then I went to Inua Galway, and, and this is 1985, to study what I should have studied, English and philosophy. And um, I was about, I'd say I was about as dull a student as ever emerged from Inua Galway. Um, but I was a great reader, and I did enough to, I did enough for, to persuade the professor in, in, in philosophy to allow me to go on and study uh, for an MA. I proposed a thesis on, I'd always been interested in technology and in machines, ma mainly my reading of science fiction, particularly writers like Philip K. Dick and J.G. Ballard had convinced me that, that we not only do we shape our machines, but our machines turn around and reshape us. And I was, I was really interested in this, still am in, interested in it. And um, so I proposed a thesis on Martin Heidegger's work on technology. And um, I didn't write a word of it. But I, I, spent, I spent two years reading on it, and I read high up and low down in it in that. And um, so I, I still have the notes at home, and, and I scan through them now and again in that. And um, so I was a poor philosopher, but I came away with a great sense of the structural and intellectual rigor that, that philosophy brings to its considerations in that. And that more than anything, the theme of technology, yes, but the structural rigor and the, the logical focus in that that, that, um, that, that philosophers and, and philosophy brings to its consideration, those things were very important to me. And I think I used them very cannily in my, in my, uh, in my first book of short stories. Um, it's been remarked they're very tight constructs. My first book of short stories, they're very chiselled, sculpted, structurally mm -hmm. um, honed pieces in that. And that's certainly a legacy of, of, uh, of years in, in philosophy and that. I was just thinking coming up here, actually, that um, as well as the philosophical bent, there is almost, you know... Um, an engineering quality to this novel. I think it's probably the longest single-span structure of a novel um, in, yeah. in Irish history. Um, one of the things I used to do, one of the things I used to do for years was was um, was I was just open up my copy and write um, whatever came into my head. But generally, it was prompted by what whatever it was I was considering the day before, and just write and with no other purpose other than to maintain a running rhythm and see where it took me. Uh, so I have about eight or 900 pages that are continuous, and I don't know what the hell they're about, but they're just, they just have a continuous running riverine thing going on in them. And um, that, was, that, was a, that was a kind of an exercise that I set myself because I was very aware of myself as a, I published four books. I was very aware of myself as a, a chiselled, as a, as, a, as a quite careful crafter of sentences and paragraphs. And, um, and I love them. I, there's nothing pleases me more than uh, a great pro stylist in that. But I was very aware also, some of my sentences have a kind of forensic atten attentiveness to them. But I was very aware that that style was allowing an awful lot of what was vague and slobbery and uncontainable about life to fall outside of its consideration. So how was I going to gather in that kind of thing into these chiselled, polished sentences? I wasn't able to do it. Well, there was one way of doing it. I could write a big, massive book. But I don't have energies, I don't, and I don't have that kind of dramatic swathes to write that type of book, a big, long book. So what I said I'd do is I'd write a big long sentence instead and see and see where that took me in that. And once I had that set up, and once Marcus was set up, then the book became kind of... Uh, and you're right about engineering. It is an engineer, a span. The book is... Solar Bones is a book that spans one hour, and it's anchored at one end by the Angelus Bell, and it's anchored at the other end by... The time signal for the one the time signal for the one o'clock news, so that these two temporal bookends at each end of the book, 
one a divine marker and one a temporal marker. And the book spans that. Mm -hmm. And it's set in that hour in the middle of the day. And I think Marcus himself comments on that hour that's between 12 o'clock and 1 o'clock. He just comments that it's neither here nor there that hour, that it's neither the morning, you know, the morning's best energies are gone. And it's too early to have the dinner to replenish yourself on that. And there's nothing on the radio, but, you know, I don't know who's on the radio at 12 o'clock, but it's always songs in three-quarter time or something like that. So it's not very energetic. And that's the moment where, but you're right, a span is, is, uh, is one of the ways that I saw the book. In terms of yourself then as a writer, uh, maturing and as a person and growing older, um, how would you see how your work has evolved um, over the years then? Like your, your first novel was kind of a lot of um, violence or it was a young man's, or sorry, short story collection. It was maybe a young man's work, would be fair to say. Oh yeah, absolutely, um, yeah. It's funny, I was talking about this to another male writer today. Uh, Elizabeth Reapy. I don't know if you've read Elizabeth's uh, debut novel, Red Dirt. It's a really fine book. And she she paid me the compliment that she she said what I love about the book is that there's so much ordinary stuff in it, and it's 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 a vision of ordinary male and that. And I, and I I said, you know, I said that's what I hope it is. And I says one of the things that made me worry for it. I wondered. Who'd be who would be interested in reading about ordinary male people and their kind of day-to-day -day rhythms and rituals and everything like that? And um, we were just talking about, and I was making exactly the point that I said my first book was full of explosions and knives and guns and fires and the whole thing. Um, throw everything at it and that. And it's as if when you're young, it's only those big swinging amplitudes that you can see, those are the only things you have an attunement for. High drama. High drama and serial killers and axe murderers and, you know, the whole shebang. And um, I often think that, that, the, that the first, my first book, you know, it has a soundtrack, if you're interested, it has a soundtrack of Scandinavian death metal. <laughs> and, and, and this book here is... Hank Williams and George Jones. Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of evolution of the that's the kind of evolution of the of the two. It's interesting though because one of the, the strongest images in this book is also a knife. It's the image of the bread knife in the family kitchen, which is symbolizes the evolution of the marriage and how it's been uh, sharpened, it have to be resharpened and you know re reground over the over the years. Yeah, and so it's it's almost like a soft image of and I've domesticated. It, that's, that's really interesting because I, I, my first book, and again, it was someone else's point, you, you, you have no clue what, sometimes as a writer what you're writing and you, you leave it to others to show, show it to you in that. But my book was, getting it in the head, was translated into Croatian and it was published in Croatia. And uh, it was launched by... Um, a distinguished Croatian writer, and he pointed out something I didn't know, but there's knives on the first page of my book and there's knives on the last page of it. Um, and they're malignant, malicious, dangerous knives and that. But this is a, the knife in this one is a, it's a bread knife, a carving knife, and um, it's symbolic of, they got it as a wedding present. It's, it was bone handled. And it has gradually kind of, it's become rounded with 25 years of marriage. It's become rounded. It fits more closely to the hand. It comes readily to the hand. It's even more balanced. It shows all the marks of being used on a, on a, on a, on a, against the steel and everything. It's become venerable. It's become venerable. And it even, it, even has a, it, it even has taken up more of a shine and a gloss with the passing of the years and that. And... I think Mara comments, she says, I love the fact that we're living the sort of life where things are wearing down around us mm -hmm. and that. And um, I think it's, it speaks a kind of an involvement with the world, not an attrition with the world, but a kind of an involvement with the world in that. What about some of the continuities um, then in the writing? We've spoken maybe about a, a change of um, maybe uh, less testosterone, uh, a more mellow approach that maybe comes with age or 
an appreciation of the quieter things in life, perhaps. Um, there's a quote from you from an early interview saying, I have always liked writers who write the same book. Um, and there are kind of things that you can kind of identify um, as as common. Um, there's a standout story in Getting in the Head, for example, is a Blackley comic meditation on self-alienation um, in which a sculptor dismembers himself for the sake of his art. I'm thinking there's a parallel there, surely, with the daughter Agnes and her performance in yeah. Solar Bones. Yeah. Um, I didn't think of that, but there is... Uh, the, the body is a kind of... The body is a political arena, I suppose, is always kind of, has always, um, <clears throat> has always interested me and it seems as a political and artistic arena has always interest, has always interested me. And um, that's because in, in my, when I graduated from Inuit Galway, or UCG as it was then, I took on a succession of under-the-counter jobs, those sort of jobs that you take on in your 20s. You, I was a, I was a floor sweep and I was a as a floor sweep and I was a window cleaner and all that. And that's how I spent my 20s, uh, writing this first book of short stories. But I received a further education at the hands of sculptors and painters and uh, photographers. Um, all through my 20s, I spent my time with visual artists. Uh, in fact, I didn't meet a writer until the day I signed my contract with Jonathan Cape. And uh, I was brought out to a restaurant called Fitzers. Is it still here in Dublin? Fitzers? Oh. Anyways, I was brought out to a restaurant called Fitzers. And uh, my editor, who, who would be my editor at Cape, then he, he says, I'm going to a reading tonight to one of our Cape poets, uh, a man called Thomas Lynch, who was an undertaker from America. He says, come and see him. And he was the first writer I ever met. I'd never met anyone in my 20s, but I had met loads of visual artists, uh, I was familiar with their work, familiar with their, just the way they went about gathering material to themselves, how they went about, and, 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 and I despaired of them. They, their, their thought processes and their MOs were so different to my own and that. And I used to live in these houses where canvases and bottles and boxes and sticks and stones and everything piling up around me and it used to drive me daft. But that was the way that visual artists work. They're great hoarders and great gatherers of stuff towards them and that. So I've always had this interest and this immersion in it. And then I, you know, I marry a, a visual artist as well and that. So that's been a, a, an ongoing consideration and that. It's interesting that the first writer um, you meet is an in undertaker because like death stalks your work as well. Um, it does. Again, like back in 2005, you were talking about there are so many dead people in your work. So in the um, your first novel, you ended up killing him off earlier on, right at the beginning, and spent the rest of the book resurrecting him, which is, again, there's an echo um, with um, that's, Marcus in this. That's um, not, yeah, that's notes from a coma I did. I killed yeah. him off right at the beginning and spent... Spend an entire book trying to resurrect him, yeah. I think it's almost apt that this podcast is going to be aired on the 31st of October at the end of the month, which is Halloween, of course. Yeah. Um, just before all, all, <laughs> all Souls Day, um, um, where you know, the book is set, and when our thoughts traditionally turn to our departed loved ones and the border between the living and the dead, which is always porous, is maybe completely broken down. Um, what about um, your thoughts on death and the afterlife? Um, like this is almost like a kind of a, a secular hymn of a novel. Um, what, you know, what kind of thoughts do you have about mortality and uh, the four last things, what have you? <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm not so sure that I go around thinking about death. Like, yeah, sometimes it will draw me up in my tracks and that. But I think when you're writing and you sit down to be a writer, I think you're actually quite a different person to the person that walks around talking to other people. I think you're a kind of... I don't go around thinking about bread knives or thinking about, about things like that. But when I sit down and I... and my mind clicks into that place where writing happens. I become, I become this man who's, whose pen has this gravity towards those those meditations, and one of them is death, is a recurring thing, and all my characters seem to have this betwixt and between existence. There's a man in a coma, and there's a man 
his ghost and then there's another crow is neither dead nor alive as well he may be a fallen angel of some sort so my my um my characters inhabit that betwixt and between on death um is there an afterlife i hope so the prospect of it you know i i was brought up in a I read a biography of, of Martin Luther and Luther was a, was a broad and subtle theoretician of these things but the biographer points out that in many ways he never got over the opening pages of the Bible and the Old Testament in which there is a thunderous bearded Old Testament God reigning over the world for all his subtlety on the Redeemer. He never actually got away from the from the big towering Old Testament God. And in in some sense, I don't think I've ever got away from the things I learned in national school and secondary school as well. And is it a less forgiving uh, it's not less theology? Forgiving, a less forgiving theology and it's a bit of a wager. Are you going, am I going to present myself at some sort of a desk in the hereafter and there's going to be a sum of my rights and wrongs and that, I think it's probably going to be something like that. I hope the odds are stacked in my favour. But I do think it's going to be something like that. Mm -hmm. um, that's what I would, would say at the moment, and I probably think there is some sort of an afterlife. You know, if you ask me again now next week, but at the moment, as you ask me, uh, it seems quite probable that that's at least as probable as the other thing, that there's nothing at all. Away from the abstract, though, like, you know, you've spoken that your your father died when you were a teenager, just as you were leaving school, about to go to university. And then now, very recently, you've become a father yourself. So, like, th those must be thoughts that kind of, you know, cross your minds and weigh on your Yeah, head. they are. Um, yeah, they are. In... in um, uh, particularly in, in my own family, where we have a, the men have a history of heart attacks. We're all, we're all very healthy until we get sick, and we don't bother getting sick. We just fucking die, and and that's it. You know, we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't beat around the bush, and that. Um, so there's an onus on you to kind of, to pick up good habits, and to, it was very, the the the, the morning my the morning my. After my son was born, I went to I went into Marks and Spencer's to get something for for Maeve, and I met a man that I hadn't met in 25 years, and I'd gone to school with him, a national school with him, and um, he'd had a stroke, he's the exact same age as me, and he'd had a stroke that left him completely disabled on one side of his body, and I was, and, and um, he was a single man and. There I was telling him that my, my son had been born and that. And it, um, it was a very strange moment. So, yeah, there's, you know, become, you know, became a dad at 48. Um, you know, left these things late and that. But, um, yeah, it's certainly, it's a great maker of seriousness in your yeah. life, yeah. Um, having a child. Yeah. Makes me think of two things. One, uh, Richard Parr, um, his book has just been um, reissued. Um, and his wife wrote a beautiful piece about um, about his life as a writer and his early death just a few months after um, his book came out. And in the, there's a character in the, or there's a talk in the book of the family monster, which is heart attacks, which you know take the men in their forties, whatever. And then also becoming a father. And Joe O'Connor has written about it. How kind of you know, that was a kind of a big marker in his career as a writer. He suddenly realised that time was finite and his earlier, maybe, you know, lighter work um, was replaced by Star of the Sea and sort of more, I think, more of a, a sense yeah. of writing for a legacy. Uh, you know, I suppose you'd like to think as well that it's not just that you have kids, but that, that age itself would add some sort of wisdom and depth to you and that mm -hmm. uh, you'd hope that it would do that. It's it's not it's by no means certain that it does, but uh, you live in the hope that as you go on and as as experience accrues to you, that you get to be that you get to be able to discriminate what's right and wrong and good and bad mm -hmm. and everything like that and live accordingly. Um, yeah, there is a marked difference, all right, between my early work and I don't think I could go back and write any of those those stories now. 
Um, and I don't have the, the things that I was interested in. I don't, things I was interested in, I don't, I don't, I couldn't see myself now sitting down reading a book about a serial killer. When I had, you know, there was a time when I had a great appetite for that kind of thing. Um, paradoxically, though enough, I still listen to Scandinavian death metal, but um, <laughs> but uh, but that's another thing altogether. Is there a stubbornness in your character, or is that a negative way of putting it? Like a kind of a determination to kind of follow your own path, like after um, the failure to um, impose the term event horizon on. Uh, the critical community. You went, <laughs> you went there and wrote a novel that was all one sentence. If you think um, that's awkward? Have a look at this. <laughs> what next? Yeah, I, you know, I've always thought that. I was asked by Olaf Turnson. I did an interview with him about three or four months ago for a hot press, and, and Olaf asked me. He said, "Do you feel successful as a writer?" And I'd never given it any thought, and I, 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 I answered very promptly. I said. You know, I do, for a very simple reason that I've written the books that I want to write, or to put it more accurately, the books that have presented themselves to me. And I've been very lucky to have ed editors who have said, yeah, we're going to go with this. We're going to, we're going to, um, we're going to uh, abide, we're going to persevere with this experiment, and we're going to give it every chance, and we're going to put it out there, and we're going to, to um, show people that it's a viable thing. Um, I was very lucky in finding finding you know Cape did that with with um, with notes from a coma it wasn't their fault and uh, Tram Press did it with this book and it's just that that's the way the books presented themselves to me you know that that's how they I always write the books by with this question in mind is that if the book could write itself how would it write itself how would it present itself if the book could birth itself independent of my work on it, how would it, how would it, what sort of shape and alignment and structure would it take? Um, I'm not interested in what I have to say or what I've, I'm not interested in my writing of the book. I just try and find out how would the book presence itself. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that this is the way Solar Bones wanted to be written. Um, and if it had wanted to be someone else, other way else, I would have written it some other way else. But it just, once, once I, I stumbled upon the fact as well that it was a, a ghost story in many ways, um, then it seemed to me that ghosts have this, would have a fear of full stops, that they'd have no business with a full stop, mm -hmm. that um, a ghost might falter and dissipate completely at a full stop, and that a ghost would want continuance and ongoingness and that. And once I got that idea in my head, the book just took off with this kind of synaptic, systolic forward motion on that. And yet for a ghost story, it's incredibly grounded. It's, in, it's grounded in stuff like kind of parish pump politics and um, the main character is an engineer and, you know, he talks about things like um, roads, the surfaces of roads and a school that has been sort of jerry-built because it had three different pours of concrete <laughs> from three yeah. different contractors. Um, so... And in, in me sort of selling it to, to friends, whatever, like, you know, you kind of almost say, get over the, the, the structure, which, you know, to an average reader or a cautious conservative reader might, might be seen as experimental and off-putting. But actually, the sort of the, the subject matter of it is incredibly grounded, is incredibly rooted in... I think that's one of... I think that if there's anything I like about... Uh, Mark is about the central character. Uh, uh, it's it's his complete involvement in the world that that kept me kept me talking to him and and which made him such good company for for the four or five years I worked with him. Um, he's a father and a son and a husband and an engineer and he's had a brush with religion and with politics and. Um, and he's a canny operator as well. He's not an ingenue. He's learned. He's learned at the feet of politicians. He can, he can handle himself in that. Um, so I just love this kind of 360 degree involvement that he has in the world, and um, he's as able to talk about sport, and about the surfaces of roads and everything like that. So yeah, his complete involvement with the world is 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 um, I think part of, 
certainly for me, was his allure. Like, it's funny, I don't think anybody's actually touched on it, but it is actually a very political work at, on a kind of a quiet level because it tackles things like that kind of local government corruption, yeah. but also the whole crypto spiridium scandal yeah. in, in the West and just, you know, things that are wrong with society and and things that are right. Yeah, I, I don't get... I, I think it, it bothers it. Uh, Belinda McKeown was very good, and she put it very good to me. She she said she said she thought the book was about how men make structures that initially are enabling, and then it become an, an entrapments and that. And politics should be an enabling uh, way of administering and organising our affairs and our societies and that. But a time comes when it becomes an entrapment and when it becomes biased mm-hmm. and corrupt and that. And um, uh, it is a it's a political novel, all right. Not in the sense of it's a critique of the left or right or anything like that, but it's very involved with what it is to be a citizen, uh, what it is to be a citizen, to be born into the state, and to. I suppose you know one of my favourite meditations on it is Marcus meditating on his on his daughter's birth certificate, and what this what this means to his daughter. Uh, he sees it as. Contrary to what most people say, when she sees her as being demarked and and enumerated, he sees her as actually being freed into her own place in society, a mindful place within the mind of the state, mm. uh, and a place that is specifically hers and hers alone and cannot be smudged or crossed over into by someone else. So he sees it, contrary to what most people see, in, doc- in documents as as kind of the state keeping tabs on you, he sees it as as an enablement. Mm. Citizenship. He sees citizenship Mm -hmm. as an enablement. And um, I was just very taken with that. that, And I'd wondered, is is that a funny sort of, is that a meditation specific to engineers? Someone was telling me, I didn't know this, uh, with engineers, politics always come down on the right. And I I didn't know that. Marcus talks at one stage, in the book, he, he talks about, he has a great belief in engineering, that it's on the side of human betterment, that it's on the side of warmth and heat and comfort and transport, and that it is one of the glories of the human project and that. And um, so all of those things, I think, add up to a kind of political yeah. consideration. There is the flip side of that, though, like the, the, the torture museum in, um, in Prague. That's where, where it went wrong, yeah. Yeah. And also, you know, I see the politics of it, not so much left-right as right and wrong. And likewise, right and just wrong. as he sees the flaws in, in local politicians, equally, you know, he himself, you know, um, in terms of when he's unfaithful to his wife, you know, he is wrong and kind of on a personal level at, at one point in his there's life. There's wrong, there's personal wrong, yeah. there's political wrong, and there's incompetence as well, which is, and I think he's in, susceptible to all three of those mm-hmm. things in that. What about the importance of locale? Um, you know, you're from Mayo, um, the work is set, uh, I think just outside Lewisburg where you're actually from, yeah. um, and a lot of your work has been set there. Um, yeah. How important is it, is it to... to for your work to be rooted there, to get the language right, to get the descriptions right, to kind of put it on the map? It's it's not something I ever and if you, again if you'd asked me this in my in my early twenties that, that I would have written five books that seemed to be set within a couple of fields of each other on that, I would have found that I think I would have been disappointed by that. Mm. But now I, I find it it's as if this is my generative ground. And my, my pen goes back there because I know the fields and the roads. I know the, the inclination of the sun. I know what's happening on every day of the week in, the, in those places and that. And then after that, anything can happen. I have no difficulty after that with penal experiments or ghosts or robots or spaceships or anything happening into it. Because once I have this fairly small, solid patch of ground... Mm-hmm under my feet and under my pen. Absolutely anything can happen after that. It's like the lever where you can sort of move the world from. Yeah, it is. And it's, it's, um, and it's absolutely essential. You know, part of, part of uh, Solar Bones is, is a kind of a, a song of praise to, to many things. Song of praise to engineers and engineering because engineers make the world. 
um, God gave us heaven and earth, but engineers make the world. And it's also a, a song of praise as well to Mayo, just its landscape and its, its roads, mountains, hills, its the wide openness of a place like Ballycroy and, um, and just the, the oddness that sometimes accrues to Mayo. You know, it, it, I, I, and the people and the history, like you mentioned, say that Mayo, one of its claims of fame is that um, it has produced three hunger strikers in the, tw- in the late 20th century. I don't know as Marcus, I don't know as Marcus correct on that, but, but, um, but, I've, but Marcus makes the point that, that in peacetime, Mayo has given three of her sons on hunger strike for the Republican cause. Now, I can't think of another county in the 26th that has given three. Marcus says he thinks it's the only one. I don't know about that. But there is a, there's a Republican plot in Ballina. And I think of all the counties in Ireland that benefited least maybe from, from independence. The Republican project. From the Republican yeah. project. Mayo might be one of the least beneficiaries of the, of the Republican project. But it has given three of their... It has given three of our sons, and two of them, as one in the 1950s, and two in the 1970s, uh, when no one else was given their sons. We were, we had three of them: Frank Stagg and Michael Gohan, mm-hmm. and that, and uh, they were they were very very big, very big political events, very resonant things. But Mayo does that. Mayo does penance and atonement. Mm. Um, knock, Croke Patrick the prayer house in Ackell. It's not a coincidence that these things have gathered to Mayo. Um, I don't know why. Is there the austerity of the, lang- of the landscape or the poorness of the land in terms of... I don't know. I really don't know. Um, you know, Mayo, God help us. I, I, really, I really don't know why that is. It's a... Um, I found out where that phrase came from as well, Mayo, God help us. historian told me there's a woman getting off at Ellis Island in the last century where did you come from she was asked she said mayo god help us and um but uh, but that was part of the meditation that um even and even there is a at the beginning of the book and i didn't and there's very little of this book that's that's made up um the the nun who becomes what is she a mendicant or a she's a Approved by the Vatican up in the hills. Approved comes by the Vatican. And says there's hell and yeah, I didn't make that up. That's true, mm. and it was it was the Vatican had to dust off some ancient rite and license her as a uh, I, I forget what the proper word is in that hermit, yeah. as a hermit. She's licensed as a hermit by the Vatican, and she was building a hermitage and that, and she had the whole wide world to choose to build it in. And where did she choose? Mm. She chose Mayo, and she's from Dublin, mm-hmm. but she chose to do it in Mayo and that. Um, and she had no good news. She had no good news. She, that, was her, that was her epistle, um, five or six years among the rainy hills of Drummond. And uh, that's where she came back. She told us that uh, hell is real and it's not empty. Um, so um, so that, was, that was no sign of the Redeemer anywhere. Um, but the, those are those are the, the things that cross us. It's because Marcus is an engineer and he has this relationship with landscape, and he spent time surveying it and driving through it, and that. So it, it was a constant kind of impression on his mind and that. And the the road, the the closing scene, the closing scene takes place exactly where I say it takes place, and that place is exactly where I say it is. And it's used exactly for the purpose that I say it's used for in the book. Um, anyone who lives between between Westport and Lewisburg knows that that, that place exactly where it is. Uh, it has the same place, the exact same orientation that I say it has and everything. So I didn't... You know. And what happens to Marcus in that place has happened to, I think, two people in my lifetime. So I didn't even make that up. It's just part of the part of the landscape that I travel on. Needs its own accident black spot sign. <laughs> yeah, it does, all right. Yeah. I found it interesting, uh, Mia Gallagher likened solar bones to um, W.G. Sebald's um, Austerlitz, and then Rob Doyle in his Irish Times review also saw traces of oh, Sebald's doom-laden ruminations. Is that, would you recognise him as an influence? No, in a word. <laughs> um, I... <clears throat> 
I read the I I read um, when the whole world read came to him and uh, read the rings of Saturn, and I, I thought, Jesus, this is a book I'll be really interested in. Mm-hmm. So I went out and I bought it, and not for the first time I found myself completely at odds with what the world was thinking, mm-hmm. and I took against it hugely, mm-hmm. and I thought it was, and still think it's 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 not a very good book, and there's a couple of writers that you'll. There's a couple of writers that you will, if you criticise them in public, you'll soon know the true meaning of loneliness. You know, you know, you know, you know, you know. There are people who have risen to a degree of saintedness, mm-hmm. uh, which makes them immune to criticism and that. Mm-hmm. And one of them is Seabold. And um, so, no, I don't. I was not persuaded by the book, and three subsequent readings of the book haven't improved it for me one bit. Mm-hmm. And that. So, and I was, I was. Um, I didn't. He's not. He's not someone that I. He's not someone that I that I looked on as a, as an exemplar or mm-hmm. anything like that. Have but you, uh, but, uh, but um, but uh, you're right, Rod. Uh, Rod did do it. I, I mean, I can. You know, when I was trying to when I was trying to when I was working with long sentences and that read loads of the people and I was able to say, well, I don't want to do that, and that's not what I want to do either, and. Uh, the best one that I came across was, I was so surprised by it, a writer I thought I'd left behind me in my early 20s, Gabriel Garcia Marquez's um, The Autumn of the Patriarch is, I think, the best exemplar of, long, of the long sentence uh, in, in recent writing. Um, I thought that was, that's, a, that's just a brilliant book. Mm-hmm. And, and um, if anything, that was the one that... that uh, it came to me. Okay. What about the importance of prizes? Like you started out um, with, you know, a huge boost at the start of your career. Did that put pressure on you? Um, it it didn't, but it didn't. It was a welcome, you know, a pat on the back is always welcome. And that, and it brought with it uh, a monetary prize, which was uh, as welcome. Mm-hmm. And, um, but um, prizes are, prizes are, are, um, I was I I've been on I've been on um by and large I think prizes are a, are a good thing. I've been I've been a judge on the on the Impact Award about four or five years ago I think it was and we gave it to John McGregor's Even the Dogs and um it's a great book. It's um it's worthy of every prize that it didn't get mm-hmm. as well. Um and um, I was so glad that we were that we were able to honour that prize, particularly as it's a kind of an experiment, and it's um, a bit awkward, difficult to explain to people. You say, "Here, read it," and that. I remember, <laughs> I, remember I was on the I was on the um, I was on on that that uh, impact panel, and my and. Uh, to read 160 books. I was going to say, Carlo Gabler wrote about that, yeah. and the reward is not as lucrative as no. certainly you wouldn't get laid out of bed. No, there is a fee, but it wouldn't. There's about eight it's months. Not a, it's not a year's work. No. It's not a year's salary, for sure. No, that's for sure it's not. Uh, but, but, uh, so they, they, I think it was uh, um, some, some person in a truck delivered these books, oh. five boxes of them, tipped them into the hall and that, and there I was looking at them and thinking, Oh Jesus! This is the next year taken up on that, and um, started reading them, plowing through them, and that. And then my wife comes downstairs and she plunges her hand into the, into the, into the, into the, into the pile of books and sits down. And five hours later, she gets up and throws it to me and she says, "There, that's the winner." And and um, and she was right. It was it was uh, it was even the dogs. I you know I've been on I've been so thrilled like to to honor that book and i've been on and i was then on another on another um uh, the one other f- formidable prize that i was on was it was the the, the glenn Dimplex, uh, debut novel of the year award and um which was which was uh, i think in in the in the house next door or the gallery next door and uh we i was with claire kilroy and um we read 80 books for that <clears throat> And it was a really promising year because a lot of people who've gone on to make names for themselves um, have have subsequently published books. But um, I'd I'd never been in a I'd never been on a on a panel before, and I didn't know what 
didn't know what sort of negotiation or what, going, what kind of thing was going to happen. But there was one book that stood out for me. So I chanced it. I says, I says to, um, I said to Claire, I says, I said, this is the winner. I says, head and shoulders above everything else. She says, yeah, I agree. And that was it. That's as long as that meditation took. Uh, it, seemed, it, it presented itself as self-evidently the best book we'd done. And I was so proud, again, to draw attention to that. I'm not so sure how many people ever read the book. The book is called Last Bird Singing. Take it down, Last Bird Singing. And it's by Alan Bush. And um, we didn't know a thing. We, we made no friends in the house that night, myself and Claire, because all these young dudes, you know, promising lads had... had um, written these very sparky, intelligent, but this book, and it was a retired engineer in the 70s got up and claimed the prize, and that, that's, we didn't know a thing about him, and uh, it was his debut novel, and um, he'd poured all his life into this, what was a thriller set in Cardiff, and, um, but those two prizes, you know, I'm so pleased that we were able to honour these, these mm -hmm. books so, that I, yeah. books that I frankly, you know, covet mm -hmm. and that, and that's how you know that that that's, you've uh, discovered something. Yeah, that you yeah. discovered yeah. something. Yeah. And, brought, and brought it to yeah. light. Yeah. Maybe finally, uh, we're speaking just um, privately before um, this started about your work. Um, for several years, you've worked as a creative writing tutor um, at University College in Galway. Um, could you maybe speak a little bit about um, what you were telling me, like your kind of philosophy? You didn't study creative writing yourself, which you actually think gives you an advantage. Yeah, I think so. Um, we were just talking about it, and I was talking there about uh, to Joanna just before we, we came out, and um, making the point that neither of us had been to creative writing classes on that, and that, um, and I was making the further point that it's only us that haven't been to creative writing classes that should be allowed to teach because we come with no I've taught generations of, of, of students who have come through writers who've been taught themselves and I can see the same language, same idiom, same structures uh, being perpetuated down through the line and I can see it becoming a, a very calcified tradition. So I think it needs people, you know, with all humility, people from outside to step in and, um, and, and break it up and that. People who have no knowledge of the vocabulary, but who have somehow or other written good books and that. Um, so I, worried about, I worry about um, the, the, the kind of calcifying of, uh, of uh, the teaching of creative writing and that. The first thing I, you know, the first thing I say to my, my, my and again, even you, it's it's so easy to fall into this kind of teacherly idiom that I just call it, say students. The first thing I tell my students is that I can't teach you how to write. Uh, if I could teach you, I'd have no interest in it. And that, what I said, what I can do is I can show you. If you want to do something, I can show you four or five different options, and it's up to you to go about <clears throat> discovering and experimenting and seeing which of those options suit you and that. At every step along the way, I can show you different ways of doing it and that. And it's up to you. I'm not going to stand over you and say, this is right or this is wrong. So set aside any notion you have of teaching and instruction and put in place something of an adventure and an experiment and a sense of discovery. And basically what you do, or what I try to do, is set up a a place and an atmosphere where students will, or young writers will hopefully want to go and make their own experiments and read their own books and that, find their own voices. Thanks very much, Mike. Um, we'll leave it there. Um, I'll just uh, obviously like to thanks very much to Mike for taking part in this evening's discussion. Um, if you haven't read any of the articles that we've published over the last month, um, I'd very much encourage you to do so. Um, if it's a mark of the quality of a book, um, the quality of its admirers and the writing that it has produced from Colin Barrett, Mia Gallagher, Shay Rickard, uh, Lisa herself, Sarah Bohm, all coming at it from very different perspectives, and Claire Kilroy as well, and John Kelly and Rick O'Shea. If you read 
one or any of them, you'd come away um, wanting to read um, Solar Bones and you'd be right. Okay, listen, uh, thanks again, Mike. And thanks very much to the Irish Writer Centre. Uh, I should say the next month's book will be uh, Irish Times Book Club Choice is Anna Cannon Schofield's Martin John. Um, Mike's bitter rival, along with Eamon McBride and three other titles for the Goldsmiths Prize next month. Um, So, there we go. Thank you very much.